good to be here. Appreciate your presence very much. Brother Aaron couldn't be here. He's traveling, going to be traveling a few few weeks this month. So uh, keep him in our prayers, travel prayers for him. We're going to be continuing in uh, Matthew, the 19th chapter. Ian got the hard part, the first 12 verses last week. Uh, He covered fail marriages in those first 12 verses. I get to start off with the Holy Spirit changed from that to the blessings of happy marriages. So it went from from uh, difficulties of failed marriages and how Jesus dealt with those and how the old law dealt with that and how we deal with that in the, the New Testament. And immediately he jumped into to, uh, the blessings of children. But he did that by... Uh, the Pharisees coming to him, and there in verse 3 in Matthew, the 19th chapter, verse 3 said, Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, asking him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And, and Ian went through the, those 12 verses and covered that very well. And, and then, like I said, then we get to the, to the easier part, much more pleasant part, to the blessings of having a happy marriage. And one of those blessings being children. So Jesus was brought these children and he blessed them. But there was some problems. And I thought we would read Psalms 127 first, a familiar passage of Scripture, and talks about a house that the Lord built, a very familiar passage of Scripture, and and the blessings of the house that the Lord builds. Psalms 127, the Bible says, Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain, in vain that build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so the children of one, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with the enemies in the gate. So children in a man's youth, in a couple's youth, but also in old age. We can send our children out as emissaries, even to our enemies. We trust their judgment. We can relax and know that they're going to be even be making deals with enemies in difficult circumstances so they're going to be a blessing for us in in our young age and in our old age as well so going from the difficulty that Ian had to deal with last week we have the blessings of children in a happy marriage and in a godly marriage so that brings us to Matthew 19 starting there in verse 13 The Bible says in verse 13, Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hand on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked him, rebuked them. They were very protective of Christ. They were concerned. But Jesus said, verse 14, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Now, if we look in Luke's account, he gives us a little bit more information. He tells us that they also brought infants 
So these were very small children he was bringing to them. And it was customary for for couples to bring their small children, infants, to the president, to the priests in the synagogue, in the temple, to have them lay their hands on their children and bless them. And, you know, in an effort to impart blessings upon them, pray for God's blessings on them. So this was an honor that they were extending to Christ, a recognition that he was a holy man, that he was a prophet, that he was a man of God. And they were doing that. And again, Christ said, let the children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Then he goes into a little bit more detail in verse 17. He says, assuredly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So a little bit more information. Of such is the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say, those who do not receive the kingdom of God as a little child. So what what exactly is that a reference to? The previous chapter, Matthew the 18th, We got into that a few weeks ago. At that time, verse 1, the Bible says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Not exactly a childlike answer, was it? They were, who's the greatest? (laughs) Who's the greatest? They were were competing a little bit there, weren't they? Verse 2, Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted, unless you change, unless you do things differently than than the questions you're asking right now, and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So I think we're starting to get an idea of what he's talking about. Of such, as he said there in Matthew 19, of such is the kingdom of heaven. So we're talking humility, childlike characteristics, simplicity, innocence, recognition of our dependence, total honesty. Kids are very unpretentious, aren't they? Out of the mouth of babes. It'd be wonderful if our, all of our Christians were that way, wouldn't it? Of such is the kingdom of heaven. That didn't mean, doesn't mean that everyone in heaven is a child. It doesn't mean that everyone is actually childlike, but we have those type of attributes in that we're honest and we're unpretentious and we're humble and we recognize our total dependence on God. But it does make made me curious about, and I thought I would go into a little rabbit hole here for a minute. The children's sin... Are children saved? A couple of questions, and there's a lot of doctrine out there concerning a couple of questions there. You know, it's, it's pretty, pretty easy to say, easy to see that sometimes children act in, what, in a manner that we might term as sinful. But is that sin? I mean, it's, 
a child might exaggerate. They might deny doing something that they had done. They might, they might be disobedient to parents. Something that we might say, well, in a strict nature, that might be termed as being sinful. But is it actually a sin if a child does that? If they're selfish with something, if they take a toy away from a, another child, if, if they strike out in anger and injure another child, is that actually sin? If they want something that they shouldn't have, is, is that actually sin? Do so, do children sin? Romans 7, we talked this, about this a little bit last night. We've talked about it recently, familiar passage of Scripture. The Apostle Paul, Romans 7 and 7, said, I would not have known sin except through the law. I'm sure we know this. We've heard it quite a bit. For I would not have known covetousness except unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, and when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died can be a, a little bit confusing passage. But he said, one key word here. He said he was alive once, without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. What's he, when, did this, when did this take place? What's he talking about? When did this take place? There's one key word here. I would not have known sin. There came a point in his life when he came to know sin. The key word there is at some point in his life, he gained knowledge. The law of Moses has been around 1,500 years when Paul studied at the feet of Gamaliel. So the law of Moses didn't, had been around a long, long time. But at some point, Paul, studying at the feet of Gamaliel, learned enough to think, uh-oh, I've been coveting, and I didn't know it. I've been doing something else, and I didn't realize it. I would have not known sin except through the law. At some point in his life, studying as a little boy, at some point, he began to realize that he had not known sin, but the law taught him what sin was. And at that point, verse 9, I was alive once before the law, without the law. But when the commandment came, when I realized what the commandment was at some point, Sin revived, and I died. He recognized that he was spiritually dead when he reached the age we call it accountability. When he recognized in his life that wasn't a time in the law of Moses. It was a time in his own life when he gained knowledge of sin through the law. Romans 3 and verse 20, he also said there, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. The law wasn't there to justify people. 
It says, for by the law, because by the law is the knowledge of sin. That was what the law was for, to teach us about sin, to define sin. It was also there as a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, tells us in Galatians. But first they had to make us conscious of sin, conscious of the fact that we're sinful, that we had broken God's law, and that we were desperate for a Savior. And God's going to punish us. He's going to punish sin. Colossians 3 and verse 5. Paul says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So are children lost? Are they going to be punished? Because sometimes they do things that could be classified as disobedient to parents, as stretching the truth, as maybe being lashing out in anger. But the fact is they don't know what they're doing. They're innocent. Even if they do something that we might term as being strictly speaking, could possibly be turned as sinful. It's not a sin because they don't have knowledge of what sin is and the consequences for that sin. But there is such a thing, a doctrine, as original, inherited, inherent sin. There's a doctrine of that. Pretty much based on this verse, Psalm 51 and 5. Psalmist said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So how do we reconcile that with the other passages in the scripture? We maintain that this is a reference to the fact that David was brought forth into a sinful world that his parents sinned on occasion, that even as Jews and even as people who tried to keep the law of Moses, that they sinned. It has nothing to do with the fact that he was, uh, the doctrine they try to maintain, that he was born as a sinful baby. when Christ clearly said that of such is the kingdom of God. But according to this, they maintain that children are lost according to this doctrine. But Ezekiel 18 and 20 is a very familiar passage of scripture. The Bible says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Pretty emphatic. Not inherent. Sin is not passed down from generation to generation. There were consequences for Adam's sin, but that sin did not carry down to the next one. Spiritual death did, was passed down. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, if it was inherent sin, why would God want us to receive the kingdom of heaven as a little child if that little child was inherently sinful? 
So are children saved? They do sometimes act if what we might want to classify in a strictly in a sinful manner, but they do not have knowledge of that sin. They live their lives in an innocent manner until at some point in their life, and it's different for everyone, they will reach a point. It's interesting to think in Numbers 14, that age was 20 years old. We know the 12 spies went in to spy, went across the River Jordan to spy out the land, and two of them came back with a good report, Caleb and Joshua. The other 10 didn't, and God condemned the children of Israel, everyone from 20 years old and above. Numbers 14, starting there in verse 29, the Bible says, The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who are numbered according to the entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, ye shall by no means enter the land which I swore to make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. So it's interesting that 19-year-olds were referred to as little ones. And this picture, this type of crossing over Jordan was um, a picture, if you will, of the age of 20 and above were held accountable in this particular situation tells us that everyone will reach a point in our lives where we will be held responsible for our actions. And when that happens, the Bible's very clear that we will need to obey the gospel. We're not going to go into that. We will need to hear, believe, repent, confess his name, and be baptized for the remission of sins. And 1 John 1 tells us that we will need to walk in the light as he is in the light, and the blood of Jesus Christ will continually cleanse us from sin as long as we continue to walk in that light. But until that time, we are in a saved condition as children. So before we get to the age of accountability, we must conclude that children aren't capable of committing sin knowingly, and so therefore neither are they capable of carrying anyone else's sin. And if something happened to them, they would be in a position in an acceptable relationship with God. So God forbid if something did happen, tragic did happen to them, they would be with the Lord for an eternity. Okay, that was a little rabbit hole. We went down. Let's get back to our text. Verse 16, Matthew 19 and verse 16, and we've got a, another little <clears throat> situation uh, that Christ deals with here. A rich young ruler, Matthew 19 and verse 16, the Bible says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said to him, 
Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The other accounts, Mark 17 tells us that the man ran to him and knelt before him. A little bit more information there. Luke's account tells us it was a certain ruler, a ruler being a prince. So there were some very admirable things going on here with this guy. He came running. He came humbly. This was a prince who knelt at the feet of Jesus. He came sincerely interested. We don't know what he was interested in doing, but he volunteered for work. We don't know if it was discipleship. We don't know if it was service or learning, but he was interested. And he came asking the most important question we could ever ask. What must I do to be saved? He came with a history of service, a history of observing the law of Moses, a history of setting an example as a, as a ruler, as a prince, as a man of authority. A lot of admirable things. But he had a problem and Christ knew it. Let's look at it again. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And you would think that would be flattering. You would think that would be a, he recognized, this is three years or so into, into Christ's ministry. He's well known. He's done many miracles. He's done much teaching. You would think this would be a flattering, uh, he's, on, he's knelt down in front of Christ, he's on his knees, he's not flaunting his position as a prince, he's not trying to buy a position, he's, you would think this would be a, a very humble thing that he's doing, but apparently this wasn't something that Christ appreciated. He said, why do you call me good? He said, there is none good but one, and that is God. He said, don't, in, in a careless way, say something that only applies to God. E even if you mean it in a respectful way. Seems like he was, knew he was talking to a man of God. But Christ also seems to be telling him that I am God. He seems to also be letting him know that I am Emmanuel. I am the Messiah. Because look what else he says. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, 
Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he answered and said to him, teacher, he didn't say good teacher this time, he heeded the warning. He said, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Interesting. Loved him, displayed his love for him. Looked at him in a loving manner and said, one thing you lack, go your way. Sell whatever you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up your cross and follow him. Looked at him, loved him. He kept all these things. He had a history of trying to do the right thing. Now, his heart may not have been in the right place. He may have been doing it for show. We don't know. Or he may have had a hard time distinguishing between the things of the world and the things of God. And we'll get to that in just a second. But he had a history of service to God, a history of trying to do the right thing. But Christ has loved him. Let him know that he was loved. One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, sell everything you've got, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, take up your cross, and follow me. You can be a disciple. Sell the stuff that doesn't matter. Come and be a disciple of God. Would we make that choice today? Would we make that choice? But he was sad at this, at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He could have gone away angry. But it was a hard choice. But that may be even worse because he had an idea of what he was turning down. He understood this was a man of God. He understood this was Emmanuel. This was the Messiah. It was even worse because he understood that he was doing wrong and he was making the wrong choice. So what was the result? A few decades later, in all probability, a few decades later, he was in the siege of Jerusalem and he got to watch his grandkids and his kids slaughtered by other Jews because most of the one million Jews that died in the siege of Jerusalem were killed by their own people before the Romans ever got there. He made the wrong choice. Terrible choice. Horrible choice. He knew it at the time. Wealth makes it hard. And he goes on to teach about wealth. Verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Admittedly, I say unto you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, 
They were greatly astonished, saying, Then who, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. There was some scholars who tried to, try to uh, define the eye of a needle as a gate in Jerusalem. Uh, needless to say, that, that didn't get changed. They didn't rename the gate until several hundred years after Christ. This was actually a reference to a camel going through the eye of a needle. <laughs> this wasn't. Uh, some a reference to a man or a camel passing through a gate in the wall of Jerusalem. It's absolutely impossible. Of course, it's impossible for any of us to enter the kingdom of God apart from God. But the point he's trying to make is it's even more impossible for a rich person. It's even more impossible, even harder. So how many of us are rich? How many of us in this room would be county, counted wealthy by any measure of the world today? Luke 12 and verse 47 talks about wealth and thing, people who have much. And it's actually a reference to information um, more so, but I thought it was pretty applicable. Luke 12, verse 47, Jesus said, And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given from him much will be required and to whom much has been committed of him they will ask the more. So the servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself. You know, the master's wealthy. We're talking about a very well-to-do master. And when that's the case, the servant's also very well-to-do. He has access to the, to the master's uh, belongings. He has use of the master's belongings. Um, use of the master's funds in many cases. He did not prepare himself. He knew the master's will, did not prepare himself or do according to his will. And he said he'll be beaten with many stripes. That's pretty much us, isn't it? We know the master's will. We are blessed with so many material things. But he who did not know Yet committed things deserving of many stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. Boy, we've been so blessed. Servants, blessed beyond measure. Rich by any measure. 1 Timothy 6, Paul said, starting in verse 17, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richy, riches, excuse me, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they 
be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. The odds are against us in every shape, way, and form, and, and riches don't add to that. The only chance any of us have is through Jesus Christ, through God. And riches present even more challenges to that. It tells us here that we can, we can do good. Ready to give, willing to share. And we do that. We store up for ourselves a good foundation. It guarantees nothing. But we can do good with the blessings that God's given us. And I know I'm talking, I'm preaching to the choir because we have a generous congregation. But I think it's a good reminder for all of us. Verse 27, Then Peter answered and said unto him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, and I've broken the last half of verse 28 into groups to kind of pinpoint this. Jesus here is answering Peter's questions, and it's a legitimate question. They had left everything. They had left all, and some of them had some wealth. Peter and James and John, Andrew, all had ships that they left, businesses that they left. Matthew was a publican, and he probably had some wealth. Paul was a Pharisee. He had wealth. So, what is he saying here? Jesus said to them, and I broke this down, but this is what it said. Jesus said to them, Surely I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So he gives us a time, and he gives us who you have followed me, and he tells them that you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So what's he saying here? This is going to happen in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory. That's when it's going to happen. Hebrews 12 and, and verse 2, Paul tells us, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. That's present tense. Other passages throughout Scripture tells us that God is set down on the right hand of God, making intercession for us. He's doing that right now. Okay? Titus 3, verse 4. The Bible says, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by the works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. He saved us according to his abundant mercy through the washing of regeneration. And renewing of the Holy Spirit. He's poured that out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ. Regeneration simply means rebirth. That's according to Strong's, and that's number 38. 
24, if you'd like to look that up. So when he says, in the re- this is all going to happen in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory. So he's now on the right hand of the throne of God, in the throne of his glory, making intercession for us in the regeneration, in the rebirth, in the time of baptism. Now, oftentimes we'll look at that and think that may be the regeneration, that may be the judgment. That's not what he's talking about. In the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory is a reference to right now. Reference to when he ascended to God. A reference to when Stephen said in Acts the 7th chapter, looked up and beheld Jesus on the right hand of the throne of God. Will also, you who have followed me then will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Not judging, necessarily. The judgment will take place by Christ on the day of judgment. But judging here is a reference to exerting influence. Seems to indicate that's taking place right now. And who are the 12 tribes? That's, that's not the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the church. That's the kingdom. James 1 and 1. The Bible says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Then verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So again, he's writing this. He's a Jew, but he's writing this to the church. Romans 9 and 6. Paul said, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So we understand that. He goes on to say that, that Ishmael was not, he was the firstborn, but he was not the seed of promise. The seed of promise was Isaac. He goes on to say that Esau was not the seed of promise. It was Jacob. So they are not all Israel who are of Israel. In Galatians 3, We've been using this one quite a bit lately, but it tells us emphatically, for ye are all, Galatians 3 and 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So those are the 12 tribes he's talking about, the seed of Abraham, and we're baptized into the seed of Abraham, into Christ, becoming part of that heir. So in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory is now. You have followed me, you, will, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, exerting influence, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the church. Verse 29, And everyone who has left houses and brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wives or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. And many who are first will be last, like the rich young ruler, and the last first. 